Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office and the host of this series. For today's episode, I'm happy to welcome Andreas Ohl, a partner in PwC's national office, back to the studio. Andreas and I will be joined by Chad Morrissey, a principal in PwC's deals practice. We'll be discussing the initial feedback on the FASB's invitation to comment on goodwill impairment. The comment letter period for the invitation to comment ended on October 7th, and I'm looking forward to hearing some early reactions. So let's get started. So Chad, Andreas, welcome to the studio. Thanks for joining me today. Looking forward to a conversation about a topic that for an accounting topic has gotten, I would say, a lot of outside attention or a lot of attention from non-accountants as they look at what this potential proposal to change the evaluation of goodwill may mean for financial statements. So Andreas, I had you in the studio about three months ago to talk to our audience about the FASB's invitation to comment on goodwill. Can you kick things off by giving us some brief background and explaining to our listeners what the debate is about? Sure. Thanks, Heather. So the FASB and frankly the ISB has been getting feedback for a number of years through various channels that the current model for goodwill, the impairment only model, which we've had for roughly 20 years, that it may not meet the cost benefit test, that there's a lot of cost in the system involved in applying the model. And on the other side, maybe the information content coming out of the model doesn't justify all of that cost. And as a result, they've put out this invitation to comment. It asks 29 questions all around if one were to move away from an impairment-only model and go back to some sort of an amortization model, would people be supportive of that? If yes, how would one go about doing it? And some other proposals around the accounting for intangibles and some things around disclosure. So it's a pretty robust document that they've sent out for comments. And that comment period closed on October 7th. So the comments are all out there in the public domain at this point. So, Andreas, why don't we then get into the heart of the podcast and start things off by talking about PwC's response. So, what are sort of the key topics that we hit on in the letter? So, we kind of have two pieces to the letter. So, there's a cover letter that emphasizes the key points, and then we actually answer the the 29 questions. So, in the cover letter, I'd say we focused on a couple of things. One is that we think the standard setters should remain converged in terms of amortization or non-amortization between U.S. GAAP and IFRS. It's important because the M&A market is global, the capital markets are global, and we think it would be problematic in practice if the two sets of standards were not equivalent in terms of whether to amortize or not. Another question was just whether the uh, impairment model is sort of fit for purpose. And we've always sort of had the view, we've expressed this in past comment letters, that we think an impairment model is the better approach. But we do recognize now that we've had it for some period of time that it does have its challenges. And so the question will be, can it be made better by making some improvements to remove some of those challenges? Or is it better just to go to amortization? And so we do support the FASB taking a closer look at whether some changes do make sense, taking into account the feedback of preparers, users, and other interested stakeholders in order to come up with an assessment on how to move forward. So certainly additional outreach is something that we strongly recommend in this area. And one of the reasons for that is just based on the work we did, 
there's quite a disparity in views around not only should one amortize, but sort of how and the reasons why. Yeah, I want to come back to the divergence of views, and we'll get to that in a moment. But before we move on to that, Andreas, you mentioned a few times convergence, and you also mentioned the ISB project. And I thought it was very interesting when you and I were both at a roundtable last week, hosted by the IFRS Foundation and the CFA Institute, and the chair of the ISB made a comment, and I'll paraphrase, but that it would, this is an area where it would be a tragedy if there was divergence and gap and one part of the world started amortizing. But for those of our listeners who aren't that familiar with what's going on at the ISB, can you just give a quick highlight of what the ISB's process is right now? So the ISB is going to follow a similar process to what the FASB is doing. They're just a couple of months behind. And so uh, it's likely going to be something that plays out more in the first half of next year. And then uh, hopefully the boards will try to have a meeting of the minds as to what the best path forward is. I suspect the ISB will get very similar feedback to what the FASB has received because it's going to be similar types of organizations, I think, that are going to comment on their document as well. So then, Andreas, that's helpful context. You mentioned 29 questions, so I'm curious to hear if there's anything in our letter that you'd like to highlight. I think there's a couple things. So one of the questions that, actually the first question is, what does goodwill represent? And so we got into quite a bit of detail around that because there's a divergence of views out there as to what goodwill represents. I think we made the point that goodwill is present in pretty much any business, even if it's not acquired. It's present in transactions where private equity funds acquire operating businesses. And the reason I think that's important is because a lot of people think that goodwill is primarily synergies. And you don't have synergies in a business that's not acquired. You typically don't have a lot of synergies in a transaction that involves a private equity fund buying it, which would suggest that goodwill is primarily something other than synergies. Not that they aren't in there, but that's not typically the primary element. What we emphasized really is it's going concern value. It's a series of intangibles that aren't separately recognized that are sort of culture, reputation, just the expectation that the marketplace has that a company is going to be able to continue to generate profitable projects. So it's going to develop new products that people want to buy. It's going to open new markets. It's going to find new ways to expand the business. And this is really why if you look at the models that support the purchase prices that people pay in transactions, they typically assume that goodwill is going to expand over time as opposed to that it's something that goes uh, goes away. Yeah. So that was certainly something we focused on. We're very focused on the cost benefit question, which is really that if the primary driver is that the costs are too high relative to the benefits, that would say if you're going to go to amortization, then you want to go with the simplest approach possible. And we think that's you'd have to go to a default life for the uh, amortization period. The reason for that is because there's this significant divergence in how people think about what goodwill is and whether it wastes and if so over what period, we've heard some people who think you should write it off almost immediately in a year or two and others who say, well, hey, if you have a utility in Europe right now where it's cost of capital might be 1%, you might end up with an 80 or 90 year life if you say, hey, over what period are the uh, cash flows expected to be uh, recouped in an acquisition? And so you get such a wide range of potential lives that I think you would just open up a whole new area where there'd be 
challenging debates between companies, auditors, regulators, users over whether the life selected made sense. And so if you really want to bring the costs down and you want to do that through amortization as opposed to through other fixes to the model, you pretty much have to go with a, uh, with a default life. The other thing we made as a kind of a key point was just that we think it should be mandatory. We don't think comparability would be served if some people were, were amortizing and others weren't. That's probably another argument in favor of going to a default life. And again, all that assumes that after doing more work, you conclude that amortization is in fact the best path. Okay, that makes sense. So then just to quickly summarize our letter, did we land then on the side of should amortize or not, or if you do amortize, this is the way you should think about it? Well, I think we, we've sort of, we have a very nuanced point, right, which is that we do support further consideration of whether amortization would be a better answer from a cost-benefit perspective. Like we said earlier, there's a wide range of views as to whether there's meaningful information content in impairment charges, and Chad will talk about this a little bit uh, later. If you, if you really believe that that's true, and I think there's probably some more work to be done around that, then that probably is a pretty strong argument as to why the current model with some improvements would be better than going to uh, amortization. If on the other hand, after additional analysis, it's concluded that no, the, the cost really does outweigh the benefit of the current model, making some adjustments to that model is just not gonna meaningfully change the, uh, the cost equation. Then we would say, well, yes, if you're gonna amortize, but then go with the simplest amortization approach, which is use a default life, make it mandatory and move on. But understand that there's very little, if any, information content in the amortization life. And it, in most cases, is not going to reflect the reality of what acquirers think they paid for, which is, uh, you know, expanding cash flows over time. Okay. So, Chad, I know there were almost 100 responses, which is a lot even for an exposure draft and especially for an invitation to comment. I think this is a big indication of the level of interest in this. But can you give us some sense of who responded and the types of responses that we saw? Yeah, Heather, happy to. And I, I think before we get into the how they responded, I think just some quick notable observations around who responded. One of the notables that I saw was just the breadth and depth of who responded. There was a corporate and accounting firms, uh, consultants, corporates, which actually made up a disproportionate amount of the responses. But you also had responses from educational institutions, individuals and societies. So there's a broad range of people who responded. Another thing to note was amongst the corporates, almost every sector was represented. So whether it's consumer markets, energy, financial services, health industries, there's a, a broad representation across the sectors. Maybe a third thing to note was who didn't respond. I, I didn't see a lot of responses from the investor or user community. There were some individuals who responded and maybe they represented the voice of an investor or user, but not a lot of responses from investors. And then did we see, and I know we're about to get into the, the types of responses, but was there any trend where all the corporates sort of had one view, all the firms had one view, or was it just all across the board? No, that's a, a great question. I would say where there was convergence was, one, respondents were appreciative of the opportunity to comment, and two, conceptually agreed that it, it's, it makes sense to revisit the simplification process. Thereafter, starting with question one, divergence across, across the, board, the board. Across the board. And it wasn't just across by respondent, it was even within the sectors. So an example in financial services where there was 15 respondents, eight of them did not support amortization, 
seven of them did. So you get this divergence, not just across who responded, but even within the corporates, within the actual sectors. Same goes for energy. You had four responses from the energy sector that supported amortization, and you had four that did not support oh, amortization. So very split, almost right down the middle for those. Let's loop back then to something you said that there weren't a lot of responses from the users because I referenced this roundtable that Andreas and I attended, and there were definitely some users there that seemed pretty passionate and actually seemed pretty passionately opposed. So just curious if we have a sense maybe for why users may not have responded. I agree with the comment that they absolutely have a strong view around this. We've heard this in different forums and meetings in our own outreaches. What we haven't seen, it manifests itself in a formal response. Um, I think to Andreas's earlier comments around more outreaches needed, I think that will hopefully solicit more responses from the investor community. I think they have other channels where they communicate with the, the board and the staff at the FASB and ISB. So maybe they just felt like they've said their piece through those channels as opposed to going through the what can be a lengthy process to actually issue a letter, particularly if you're a larger organization where you have to get alignment with uh, a lot of constituents. So that yeah, be part uh, yeah. Of it as well. you made the point that individuals responded. So that is, that I think, Andreas, that is a good point. I think you made a great illustration of just how evenly some of the respondents were split. So maybe can you talk us through sort of the pros and cons and why some would be for amortization and some against. And then I'm going to ask you some specific questions of once you get into amortization, how you should do it. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, maybe well, I'll start with how they responded and then maybe towards the end of the conversation we get into how they supported that response because I think they're two different questions. So starting with how they responded, let's start with the simple question is, do you support the amortization model or the current model? The responses were ranging from we support the amortization model and that will then open up a couple of nodes of questions down the road to we support the current model, but maybe we revisit the frequency of the timing of the impairment. So maybe it's a trigger-based model only as opposed to an annual test. Once you address that question, there's following questions around, well, if you do support the amortization, what should the life be? Again, that was a broad range of answers, something from three years to 50 years. Another notable point here is there was actually a response um, from one of the respondents that said, we don't really like any model. In fact, what we would prefer is to expense it right into equity, but that wasn't a specific question asked in the ITC, so there wasn't a lot of elaboration on that response, but I thought it was an interesting comment because it just shows the breadth of how people are thinking about the question. Yeah, I'm surprised Andreas not jumping out of his seat at that because I know that goes against all of his valuation beliefs. So then you mentioned this wide range on the amortization. What types of things do people say on that then? The support for the responses range from, listen, if the objective is simplification, then having a default period to amortize it is simple, right? And then they think about it through, but what's the cost and the benefit of doing that? And so this is where the divergence begins to kick in. So one is, if we use it over three years, it could be because they people believe that that actually reflects the economics of goodwill. Others believe that it's completely divorced from what economic goodwill is, which is an indefinite life asset. So pick a number. Let's just agree that's an arbitrary number and we're aligning to make it simple. And then there's yet another response that says, well, we don't know what the life of goodwill is and it's highly subjective. So leave it up to management to determine based on some industry analysis or some sector analysis. So again, you've got everything from three years default period to a long life default period to it really depends on facts and circumstances, which is neither a default period because it's going to be up to management. Another thought would be around the investor usefulness. So some had responded that the investors actually get a lot of insights from 
the, the goodwill impairment testing model. Others have responded that the usefulness is limited and therefore simplification makes the most sense. Okay, and then one of the other things that I know either was proposed or has been discussed is using a weighted average life of the intangibles recognized in the acquisition. Was that supported by respondents? There were certainly a few people who came out in favor of that. I think the, and we, we addressed this in our letter and kind of the challenge we always had with it is, imagine you have a, a software company that's being acquired and so it has an existing product that's going to be on the market for the next year or two. It has an IPR&D product that's going to come out right after that. And then everything else is goodwill because the goodwill is, well, the market expects there'll be a version after that and one after that, et cetera, et cetera, for a very long time. If you just use the weighted average life there, you might end up with a life for the goodwill of three or four years when, in fact, the goodwill is everything the buyer is expecting to happen after year after four. After that. Yet you use three or four years as your life. Moving on then from that particular question, any other key themes to highlight from the letters or maybe lack of key themes from the letters? Yeah, maybe a couple of thoughts and I'll just build upon what Andreas was saying around the different ways of respondents were thinking about goodwill. This is how respondents supported their conclusions around the life of amortizing goodwill. I guess one of the things that surprised me was the debate that's still being had around what the economic reality of goodwill is. I think the accounting definition of goodwill, it's codified, we know what it is, but that's based upon the economic principles of goodwill, which is sort of the going concern of a business. And the range of responses were everything from goodwill really represents synergies that should be amortized over three years to acknowledging that goodwill is actually grounded in the principles of a going concern. And then there's a lot, and then it wasn't just binary because there's a lot of things in between that that respondents were commenting on. In fact, there's one response that mentioned that sort of the terminal value that's used to sort of support the purchase price that's pay, being paid is merely a convenient formula. Right, so it's not even based in, in financial theory, it's just a, a, a basis of convenience. So, so the responses were all over the place, and I think that's an important thing to note because how respondents think about goodwill and the economics goodwill really drives everything thereafter in the, in the questions that were being asked. Which is why I think coming back to our comment letter for a moment, I think this idea of it requires further study. I think getting people to maybe have a more robust discussion about what is goodwill and maybe trying to get people more on the same page around that. We made the point earlier about it isn't actually in many cases synergies or if you believe it is synergies, if you look at the models that again that support the purchase price that acquirers are paying, Contrary to maybe conventional wisdom, the presumption typically is that the benefit of the synergy is manifest itself in the model through a margin expansion, and that margin expansion goes right out in through the terminal period. It doesn't dissipate after three or four years. And the, the classic example of that is you put two complementary businesses together in an M&A transaction, you eliminate the back office of one of the two companies and save... X number of dollars as a result, that savings doesn't go, is, away. Doesn't go away. You're not going to build back that acquired back office three or four years down the road. Those savings are there forever. So that, I think, is part of what we'd like to see happen at the next stage of this process is some, some, further, some further work around what is goodwill and trying to get people a little bit more aligned because the comment letters are quite diverse in that area. And 
if you're a believer, as we historically have been at PwC, that you want to try to have the accounting match the economics to the greatest extent possible. We think that that's the best way to serve the interests of the user community. Getting alignment around what goodwill is economically and then trying to have the accounting model reflect that to the greatest extent possible is the ideal place to land ultimately. So then why don't we move on to our next topic, which is just if there was anything that we discovered through the comment letters that was either new or that surprised us from the responses. Maybe shifting it to the investors, one of the comments that we've heard and we've seen both through the responses as well as anecdotally in our outreaches is around what's the benefit. Oftentimes the sort of the, the first thing we hear is, well, when you take impairment, it's already baked into the stock price, therefore it doesn't show any meaningful information to the investors. During our sort of reach out, what we started to discover was the impairment model is more than just the math to measure impairment, it's about the disclosures. And the disclosures don't happen necessarily just when the impairment happens, it happens in prior periods. And so there's a lot of useful content in the information that's provided in the sections around disclosure, around goodwill impairment. Everything from how the business is performing, how the acquisition is being um, folded and incorporated into the existing company. And it also provides some forward-looking company-specific information around uncertainty around the forecast or uncertainty around being able to achieve some of the initial synergies. That information is really useful to investors. And so I think when respondents think about the usefulness to investors, it's probably good to broaden the aperture of how you think about that to not just be about the timing of the impairment, but the disclosures that are happening prior to that are leading up to the impairment. And I think there's a few other things we came across just in terms of the usefulness of information. One is a lot of the studies that have been done historically focused on stock price movement around the impairment. And obviously, to the extent that the market's been digesting information over time, you're going to see a more muted effect. The other thing is maybe the stock price movement isn't the only measurement you should be looking at. Maybe you should be looking at other things like does the trading activity spike when the impairment charge is announced because that might be an indicator of information content as well. And another thing that sometimes gets lost is even if you think that it is more of a lagging indicator of impairment is there is some confirmation value to this because typically when the charge is finally announced and especially if it's something that's been building up over time it's typically accompanied by a change in strategy, perhaps a change in who's in charge of executing on that strategy. And so there is some confirmation value to the marketplace that management has made a decisive decision that, yes, we've been trying to fix this through these various restructurings and other mechanisms that we've been talking about for the last couple quarters. We've now concluded that that's not working. We need to go in a new direction. And that might be we're going to sell the business. We're going to restructure it much more dramatically. We're changing who's running it. We are going to sell part of it off. It's That in and of itself has information content in it. So we, we kind of call that confirmatory evidence. You guys were just talking about disclosure. And I think it's interesting because I think this is another place where there's clearly two different views, where there's one view that, as you guys said, all this disclosure is helpful and helps hold management accountable for acquisitions. And then you go back to the view that I mentioned earlier on, which is that amortization is actually what would hold managements accountable because then it would be actually flowing through the income statement. So, Chad, how do we sort of think about that? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Heather. I think a lot of the comments up until now have been really around the accounting model itself, but, but let's link that to sort of the decision around doing an acquisition. It's part of a company's strategy, and once an acquisition is made, it holds management and the C-suite accountable for making that transaction successful. People are watching. When, when companies are deploying capital, people are watching on the success of that deployment of capital. And so I think the model, not, maybe not by itself, but it's part of the, the focus on management and the C-suite to make that, that acquisition successful. Now, if we go to the amortization model, right, even if you do keep the, a, some sort of a impairment test with the amortization model, the reality is that amortization creates greater headroom, which generates less risk around impairment, which then probably will impact the robustness of disclosures. And now we've come full circle. Back to where Back to full circle, because the reason that respondents have said that there's not a lot of information in the impairment is because it's being provided in the disclosures. As the disclosures diminish, you now are providing less information through both the disclosures and the impairment to investors. And again, I think the key thing to remember here is that M&A transactions are often the single largest investment decision that a company will make. The amount of capital expended on an acquisition typically dwarfs what most companies spend on advertising, R&D, brand building, and other investments that they make. Really are a lot of sides to the debate, and I think depending on where you are in this whole environment of investor, company, auditor, etc., lots of reasons that you might have different views. So given all of this and the diversity of views that we've talked about, what are the next steps? The FASB is going to hold a public roundtable on November 15th, try to have some additional discussion around many of these topics that we've been covering on this podcast. The other thing is that the IASB will issue their document. I think they're now targeting sometime in February of next year. You know, I know last week both the FASB chair and the ISB chair mentioned, I think, the word glacial speed when talking about this project or these projects. I think given the passion on all sides, kind of makes sense that it may take some time to work through it. But definitely, I think in the end, gives us a really good opportunity to potentially improve financial reporting. So look forward to hearing what's coming next. Please join me here again next week when I welcome a special guest, Wes Bricker, a vice chair and PwC's assurance leader for the U.S. and Mexico. We have a lot to talk about, and I'm looking forward to hearing his views. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review or connect with me on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.